series. Well, this morning we are continuing in our, our Seeing God in the Psalms series, and we're going we're gonna to look at Psalm 51. Uh, but on the, out front, on the outset, I just want to tell you we're not going to get to Psalm 51 for quite a while in this message, so don't, don't expect to look at Psalm 51 for a little while. We're going to do something a little different than what I traditionally do. We'll look at Psalm 51 at the end of my message. So if you're thinking that my introduction is long, it is. Uh, but you'll understand as we get through it. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for this opportunity to jump into your word, Lord, to learn from you, uh, to learn what it is that you expect of us, require of us, um, and how we can not just love you in word, but love you in deed. And I thank you for your people. And Lord, I, I ask God that you would open up every heart here this morning to be receptive to your word, to have a desire to hear your word so that they can become more like Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The God who forgives us. That's the title, The God Who Forgives Us. So disobedience is sin. Disobedience is sin, and sin is disobedience. God gives us his commands, and he communicates to us what his law is, and we see his law in the Ten Commandments, and we see uh, what God has instructed us throughout the entire Bible, not only in the Old Testament and in the law of Moses, but we see in the New Testament what God's word says to us and, and, and how he speaks to our heart is concerning what he requires of us. You know, there's some people who want to have a version of Christianity that doesn't require anything of them, but that's not the true version of Christianity. Christianity at its core is a message of repentance. It's a message that calls people that are walking in disobedience to repent. And this is nothing new. You, you read the Bible from the beginning of the revelation to the end of the revelation, the beginning of the book to the end of the book, and it's story after story and narrative after narrative and, and communication and letter after letter of what, who God is, what he requires, and then in particular in the narrative portions, in particular the Old Testament, you see how God's people would see who God is and what he requires, and they would either obey or disobey. And disobedience is sin. Sin. And there were consequences to, to disobedience and sin. And so in particular, you can see that story of the people of God in the Old Testament. And it was this roller coaster ride of following the Lord and then, di 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 then disobeying and sinning. And then God giving them earthly consequences a, a lot of times to draw them back to him. And so sin is disobedience and disobedience and sin is sin. And sin marks and stains everything we see in our world today. Everything that we see in our world is marked by sin, is stained by sin. Even our lives as God's people, sin stains everything. It's, everything we see is not what it could have been because it's marked by sin. Even our closest relationships are marked by sin, the ability for us to sin against each other. And sin has consequences. And so this Psalm 51 is really centered on the confession of the psalmist David and his confession of his sin and his disobedience and, and how that sin marked his life. But long before David became king, there was a king whose name was Saul. Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. And, and the nation of Israel wanted a king like the rest of the nations, and so they pleaded with God for a king. And the prophet Samuel was called by God to anoint the king, anoint the first king of Israel. And, and it says that Saul was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. And he fit the part. He looked the part. And, and Samuel was reluctant to anoint Saul. And he went to God in prayer and said, God, I, is this what you want? And, and God, in essence, said, give them what they want. Give the people what they want. And so Saul gets anointed to be king. And and really, if you look at the story of the life of Saul, you just see a roller coaster of a train wreck, if that's possible for a roller coaster train wreck. It was a roller coaster ride, but it was a train wreck because he lacked character and integrity. And there's one moment in particular where God commands Saul to obliterate an entire nation of people because of their rebellion against God. God is holy. And he says, I want you to destroy these people, their land, 
The people, I want you to leave nothing standing. And so Saul goes and to the Amalekites and the army goes to, to obey the Lord and, and Saul doesn't obey God. Doesn't obey God fully. And, and so the prophet Samuel comes to confront Saul about his disobedience and listen to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. In essence, stop with your excuses, Saul. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Samuel confronts the king in his disobedience. And what does, Sam, what, what does Saul say? He says, it's the people. What does Saul say about his sin. He said, it's someone else's fault. It's the people. They wanted to worship you. They wanted to, actually, it's, it's interesting the language that Saul uses. He says, he says, the people wanted to devote a sacrifice to your God. He didn't even say his God or the God of Israel or Yahweh. He says, to your God, Samuel. So he's passing the buck. And, he's passing the buck. and, and here's, here's how this meets our world. It, 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 as it has been since the beginning, sinful humanity seeks to pass the blame onto someone else for their sin. We still do it today, don't we? We seek to pass the buck. To say, well, it's not really my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's the situation I'm in. It's how I was raised. It's, it's all these other extenuating circumstances. It's the people, Saul said. It's the people. And Samuel said, stop. Stop. Stop with your justification. Stop with passing the buck onto someone else. God has rejected you, so God rejected Saul as king. And then he tells Samuel, he says, Samuel, quit mourning over Saul and rise and go to Jesse the Bethlehemite's house. Go to Jesse's house because there's a king there. There's a man there that is to be the king. Look at that in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? He says, I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The people wanted a king. They got the king they wanted, and their king that they wanted was a failure. God says, I'm choosing it this time. I have a king for myself. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and the first thing that Samuel sees is Eliab. Eliab was tall. Maybe he reminded Samuel of Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He looked the part. You ever seen ever somebody who looked the part? And you think, surely that's the one? And this is what Samuel said. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. This has got to be the one that's to be the king of Israel. He looks the part. What, what does the Lord tell him? 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I've rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I'll just say this to us today, as the Lord told that to Samuel those thousands of years ago, what he said is still true today. The heart is what matters most. The heart is what matters most, right? The heart is the seat, is the foundation of who we really are. The heart is what matters most, and pure motives and a pure heart wins out over physical skills and aptitude every day. Saul fit the bill. Saul played the part. He looked the part, but he didn't have the right heart. And Samuel thought Eliab was the man that was to be the king. And God says, no, I see things differently. And so, so Samuel says, do you have anyone else? And so, so Jesse made seven of his sons pass before the prophet, and none were God's chosen. And Samuel says, okay, is there anyone else? You know, because he knew he heard from the Lord. So he's, is there anyone else that's here? And Jesse reluctantly, you, can you, you feel the reluctance in the story. He says, there remains yet the youngest. And he's in the field. He's a keeper of the sheep. He's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest. He's out there. And I love what Samuel says. We will not sit down until this boy gets here, until David gets here. Look at 1 Samuel 16. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Don't you wish that was written about you in the Bible? 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And this is what would happen in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints and Old Testament saints that were used by God, the Spirit would rush upon them. In the New Testament, the Spirit lives in God's people. Then the Spirit rushed upon people to anoint them for specific tasks and purposes and callings. And so at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. I love what the book of Acts says about David. Acts 13, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David. When he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So David is called a man after God's own heart and who the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he is anointed to be the king of Israel. In other portions of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, David is described as a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. So David, after this amazing experience of being anointed king, can you imagine that as a teenager? Some believe he was 14, 15, 16 years old. Probably around 15 years old, he gets anointed to be king. Can you imagine what that would would have felt like? I can imagine when my son was 15, if he was anointed to be uh, the next king, but it wasn't going to happen right away, he might would have walked a little bit differently, you know? I'm anointed. I'm the king. And so, but what does David have to, have to go back and do? Keep the sheep. He's got to go back to keeping the sheep, but the Lord was with him. Listen to David describe how the Lord was with him. He went back to keeping sheep. 1 Samuel 17, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep. For his father, and when there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And so this conversation that David is having with Saul is because the Philistines, the the sworn enemies of the nation of Israel, the God-haters, the Philistines, had a giant named Goliath. And Goliath was threatening and mocking The people of God and mocking the name of Yahweh. And David is is enraged, he's incensed at the fact that that the whole army of Israel is cowering at this giant. So he goes to Saul and he's trying to convince Saul that he's the man to take care of Goliath. And so he goes and he describes, hey, listen, God's with me. I had a lion and I had a bear and, and God was with me and I took them out with my bare hands. This is a teenage boy, right? He says to Saul, God delivered me from the paw of a lion and bear. He didn't take the credit. You can read it in in the account in 1 Samuel. He says, God delivered me from the hand of a lion and a bear. And he says this, and he will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. He didn't come in there tooting his own horn and saying, hey, by the way, I I killed a lion and I killed a bear. You know, if I did that, I probably would be be saying it a little differently. Ben Bufkin did that. No, David, David doesn't take the credit. He knows where the credit is. Who deserves the credit? He says, God delivered me. And because God delivered me through my hands to kill a lion and a bear who were attacking the sheep, wanted to attack the sheep, this Philistine, this giant, what does it mean that he's uncircumcised? It means he was uncircumcised, but it's a picture of covenant. He says, this man who's not in covenant with our God, he will be no match for our God. And as God delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the bear, God will deliver me from this Man who's not in covenant with our God. Amen? So you know the story. Saul says, okay, you can go. And I guess Saul probably thought, what do we have to lose? So he puts his armor, Saul puts his own armor on David, and Saul was a full-grown man. You remember Saul was head and shoulders above every man. He was a tall man. David's a young boy. He puts his armor on Saul, on David, and says, here, you need some armor. And I just pictured the helmet's a little too big. That whatever the stuff he wore is a little too long, a little too baggy. And David says, I can't do it like this. And he goes to a brook and gets five smooth stones and a slingshot. And he goes, and in the power of the Spirit, it was not David's strength. The giant nine foot tall. There's no way that a rock and a sling would have enough force and emphasis to destroy that giant. 
But it wasn't David. The point is this, and David knew it. The point is this, it wasn't David, it was God. God used him to slay the giant for the sake of the glory of God. And listen to what happened. After David is used by God to slay the giant, David defeats Goliath through the power of God, and the people celebrate his victory. 1 Samuel 18, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Wow. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. People have been worried about numbers for a long time, haven't they? Well, my church has this amount of people. And your church has this amount of people. We, you know, numbers, 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 right? People have always been worried about numbers and success. And what more can be done what more can he have but the kingdom? He has the praise of the people, Saul is saying. He has the praise of the women and the people. They're celebrating him. What more can he have but the kingdom? Look at verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. He eyed him. You know what he eyed him with? Eyes of jealousy. Saul eyed David with jealous eyes, and he sought to eliminate David as a threat to his power. David was a threat to his power. David was a threat to the power of Saul, and Saul wanted to eliminate David. So, so scholars believe that David was on the run from King Saul for over eight years. Let's, let's go back, okay? Let's go back. On the run for eight years, but let's go back. A little boy being faithful in a field to shepherd the sheep that belonged to his father. And he, he's used by God to kill a lion and a bear, and he's used by God to kill the giant, the, the, the enemy of the nation of Israel. And he's just obeying God, and he's standing for God, and he's honoring God, and he's being faithful. He even looks at his brother, who Eliab, who comes out in the battlefield before Goliath is killed, and Eliab rebukes him and says, you're here to see the war. You're here to see the battle. You're filled with pride. And David says, no. Someone can't talk about God like that. Someone can't talk about our God like that and get away with it. Who's going to step up and do something? David was full of courage when he should have been full of fear. David was a man after God's own heart, and he loved the Lord. And he loved him enough to go out and face a giant that could have squashed him like a bug. This is David. And now, what is his reward for honoring God? for obeying God, for being more courageous than an army of grown men. What is his reward? Javelins thrown in his head, running for his life for eight years. Can you imagine that? You obey the Lord. Some of you, we, we, we think about that. God, I've, I've obeyed you. Why is this happening? God, I'm honoring you. I'm obeying your word. Why, why, have I, why, why am I going through this? Why is this happening in my life? And I obeyed you. And, and, and I'm certain David would have had those thoughts. God, I've obeyed you. Why am I running from this maniac, King Saul, who wants to kill me? For eight years, he had to dodge flying javelins. He hid in caves. We're going to look at one of the caves he hid, on, hid in, the, the cave of Adullam. It's mentioned in Psalm 34. That'll be one of the psalms we cover here in, a, in three weeks, Psalm 34. He hides in caves. He dodges javelins. He hides with the Philistines. Can you believe that? He has to disguise himself. He foams at the mouth of the city gate one time, acts like a madman to avoid being captured. And just to show how honorable David is, Scripture reveals to us that David had at least two opportunities to eliminate his enemy Saul. And one time, when he was in a cave, Saul was relieving himself, the Bible says. And David come up, came up to Saul without Saul recognizing, cut off the end of his garment, of his robe, in such a way that Saul didn't know. And he made sure that Saul understood that he had a chance to kill him. And even doing that, his heart was smitten with guilt because he felt like he was dishonoring God's anointed. This is David. This is David. 
It culminates with King Saul committing suicide. That was the, that was the way that, that David got out of it. It was the way that he, his, his fleeing ended was in 1 Samuel 31, King Saul falls on his own sword. He commits suicide. And then David becomes king. Fifteen years later, from his anointing to be king, he becomes king. He's around 30 years old, and he becomes king. He becomes king. And David remains faithful. He remains faithful as a king. At 30 years old, he becomes king of the nation of Israel. And for 17 years, 17 years, David remains faithful. And you can go through uh, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, in particular in 2 Samuel. You see, you see, for 17 years, David leads Israel in victory. Defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the soldiers of Syria. He brings the ark back to Jerusalem. He's a, he's a, he's a man that is faithful to his God. He's a man that is winning victories because of the power of God that is in his life. And look what 2 Samuel 8 says. Three different places. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David made a name for himself. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Isn't that beautiful? David, the young shepherd boy, had remained faithful. He had fought for the honor of the name of God. He was skilled in music. He used to play music because Saul was tormented by evil spirits from the Lord. And he would play music, the harp, and the spirits would leave. He was skilled in music, skilled in battle. He was a skilled leader that led others to accomplish great things. He had men that would die for him. David's mighty men would die for him, would risk their life for a cup of water for their king. This is who David was. Well, what kind of leader is that? I don't know if the people on staff here would go risk their life for a cup of water for me. I wouldn't ask them to do that, but I know I'm no David. What kind of leadership skill did he have? Young shepherd boy, risen, raised up to be an amazing leader. He had risen to the top of the nation because the Lord was with him, but he was also faithful. God was with him, but he was faithful. He loved the Lord. He honored the Lord. And then we get to second. Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it all turns. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Notice what the text there says at the time when kings went out to battle. It was a time of war. He sent people in his place. He says, you go. I'll stay home. What do you you think was going through David's mind? Why why did he make that decision? He was a man of battle. He he understood his place. He knew where he was to be. He was to be with his soldiers, with his people, fighting the battles against the enemies of God. He knew. But surely, I think, one contributing factor is the reason why he stayed could have been something like this. Maybe he had these kind of thoughts. I've won my share of battles. I've ran hard. I've fought hard. I'm 47 years old. He's approximately 45 to 47 years old right now. It's time for others to fight. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you're a little older in life and you think, I've done my time. I've volunteered. I've served. Now it's time for the young people to do it. And in some sense, generationally, that's what happens. Uh, the, the torch has to be passed. But I want to tell you that the beginning of complacency, complacency is the beginning of when we start to, 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 to lose spiritual battles. When we begin to believe that my time is done, I'm too old, I fought so hard, I want to relax. And I want to say that the spiritual battle never looks at your age. The, the temptation of the enemy never comes for just young people. And so here's David, he fought hard, he ran hard. And he's tired. And maybe he's entitled. Maybe he feels like, I'm not going to risk my life again. I've been risking my life for so long. And here's what was was happening. David was losing his spiritual edge. You ever been in a season where you've lost your spiritual edge? Lost your spiritual edge? Complacency is a real temptation here after Long periods of battle. Some of you, maybe you've been going through the fight in your life. You've been going through the battle. 
in your marriage, in your relationships, on your job, with sickness, whatever it may be, mentally, emotionally. You've been going through the battle. And if we're not careful, we'll lose our spiritual edge and we'll become complacent in, in, in that battle because we've been going through it for so long. But we must not do what David did. We must not hang up our sword. We must not get off the battlefield. We're in a battle from the day we're born to the day we die. When God says it's time for us to go, we're going to go. But until we go, we must keep our spiritual edge. The truth is, David had, was beginning to lose his spiritual edge. And he didn't realize it as he was losing his spiritual edge. He was actually about to come up against the greatest battle of his life. And this time, it wasn't the Philistines or the Moabites or King Saul. This time, the battle was within himself. It was within himself. And I think that's all that David could see. He, he could just see the Philistines, and he could, he could still see Goliath and the Moabites and God's enemies, and he could see the physical battle. But because he had lost his spiritual edge, the man who had a heart after God, he forgot that the battle actually rages its hottest and its strongest on the inside of us. He knew it, though. What do you think it was that caused him to go and face a giant when no one else wanted to do it? It was an inner fortitude and determination to honor God. He knew what it took. But he lost the spiritual battle. And what was his battle going to be over now? This time it was going to be a battle with temptation and sin. So now look back to the text, 2 Samuel eleven two. He stays home from war. At the time when kings would go off to war, he was complacent. Verse 2 says, it happened. It happened. Sometimes things happen, don't they? It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Yep, he was complacent. Did he have Cheetos? Chips and salsa. He rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David's alone. He's on the roof of his house. He was on his couch, relaxing and resting in the state of spiritual dullness he goes out maybe he was like king nebuchadnezzar and daniel wanting to overlook his kingdom and he looks over from his rooftop to look over jerusalem and he sees a woman bathing and she's beautiful she's beautiful and immediately david has desires for her immediately david wants her Immediately, and I, I, I want to say when we lose our spiritual edge, when we, are, when, when we lose that sense of that closeness with the Lord, the devil is right there. He's waiting. He's ready. And it happened. It happened. And it's always something ready to happen. It's always something ready to happen. And the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sin, Genesis says, is lying at the door, it's crouching, and it's desirous to have you. It wants to pounce on us. It's ready to happen. So he sees her, he desires her. So here's a question to ask, where does temptation come from? Was it Bathsheba's fault? I think she was bathing in the privacy of her home, the privacy of her rooftop. Is it Bathsheba's fault? Is it Anybody else's fault? No, where does temptation come from? James chapter 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, David. His own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know what's true in this situation is that when David is on the rooftop and he's looking out, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing, he should have known right then in that moment that this woman is off limits. Why? 
Because David's married. He didn't know who the woman was, and we see he inquires about her in, in just a moment, but he, he's married. David knew in that moment because he knows he can't commit adultery. He knows he's married. But instead of listening to what he knows, he sends a messenger to inquire about the woman. So you know what this tells us? You know what it should tell us? Is that sin is sin. Sin is sin, and it always has been sin. We can try to redefine sin. We can try to say things aren't sin, that, that we don't want to be called sin. We can try to not talk about the word. We can try to ignore it and avoid it. But sin is sin. It's always been sin. And there is no need for more information, David. And for us today, there's no need for more information. God's word is clear what sin is, what disobedience is. But the issue is, is that Time, in times of our temptation, in times where we're being lured away, we will start asking for more information. Well, maybe if, or, or if, th- th- maybe I can find a loophole or a way in or a way around, but there's no more information that's needed. More information only leads to justification. No need to inquire, David. Why inquire? She's married. You're, ma- you're married, David. So what, what, did, what happened? Well, Certainly, he had those thoughts. I know he did. He had those thoughts. And you see what he did with the thoughts. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, it's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So he, he says, I need more information. Somebody go. Tell me. The one goes and gets information. Who's the one? Who's the one? Wouldn't you want to know who the one is? I just have to say, the nameless one in this story, the one, was courageous. The one, male or female, I don't know. But the one looked at the king in the eye and said, David, hey, knock, knock, wake up. Isn't this woman the daughter of so-and-so and and the, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Man, what courage to look at the king who has all the authority, all the power to get what he wants, when he wants it, and the one looks at the king and says, off limits. Off limits. You should not do this. You should not do this. And I think this is a very good encouragement for us. We need one. If we don't have five, may we have one who will speak truth to us. Who will be willing to speak truth to us and say, no, that's, that's, that's wrong. That's not right. That's sin. You don't need any more information about whether this is right or wrong. You know it's wrong. We need a one in our life who will speak up. And may we be willing to be the one. To look at our wife, our husband, our, our child, our friend, our coworker, and say, our coworker, and say, no, 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 no. Our brother or sister in Christ, no. That's wrong. That's sin. It has always been sin. It will always be sin. So, he sees her. Verse 2, he inquires about her, verse 3. And then verse 4 says that David sent messengers and took her and lay with her, and she became pregnant. Verse 2, he sees desire is birthed. Verse, in between verse 2 and 3, he's rationalizing. And then he's sending a messenger who comes back with good information that should have deterred him, but it didn't. So now, desire has conceived sin, and now he takes her. She gets pregnant. My question is this, is what happened between verse 3 and 4? What happened, what happened, what happened between the one giving David the information that they found out that she's married, she's a married woman? What happened between verse 3 and then verse 4 when he takes her? What we don't, hear me, what we don't see in the text is a time frame. We don't know how long it took. I don't think it was immediate. I don't think it is, hey, hey, go find out who that woman is. So someone go give me some, some information. They come back and tell her, tell him she's married. I don't think he immediately said, go get her, bring her back. I think there was time. I think there was time. Because I think that's how it works with all of us. There's time. Was it, was it, Was it a few minutes? It could have been. Was it a day? Was it a week? Was it a month? We don't know, but I think there was time because I think that's how it works with us. And I think think maybe this is what happened in David's mind. 
however long it was, David began the process of justification. He may have said stuff like this, I've earned this pleasure. I've denied myself a lot over the years. I've suffered a lot over the years. God, God, you're the one who gave me this sexual drive. You made me like this, God. It's your fault, God. Who does that remind you of? Adam, or ourselves, but Adam in the garden. God, it, it's, it's your fault. It's this woman. It's her fault. And it's, God, you gave me this woman. She's deceived. It, God, it's, it's your plan is all messed up. God, and maybe David's thinking the same thing. God, 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 you gave me this sexual desire. And besides, I'm the king. I get what I want. Maybe he thought this. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I'm not satisfied with what I have. Or maybe he thought this. I think this is very common for all of us. It will just be this one time. And no one will ever know. I've got enough power and smarts to cover it up. Justification. Rationalization. David desires what is not his. He takes it because he can. And then everything begins to spiral downward pretty quickly. And now when you think the story can't get any worse, it does, doesn't it? Doesn't it get worse? Now he's committed adultery and Bathsheba is pregnant And now it gets worse. And now when he gets word that Bathsheba is pregnant, he says, oh, no, word's going to get out. Word's going to get out. I I, got to do something. And Uriah was one of his officers in the military, and Uriah is in battle. And so David sends Joab to go get Uriah to bring him home. And Uriah comes home, and Uriah is confused. Uriah is a battler. Uriah is a fighter. Uriah is a man of war. Uriah is faithful. And he said, why am I here? And David said, you need to relax, go home, eat with your family, spend time with your wife. What's David trying to do? Trying to cover up his sin. Trying to cover up, he's trying to get it to where Uriah will go home and will sleep with his wife. And then his wife, because he knows Bathsheba's pregnant, everyone will assume that it's Uriah's baby. And then it's all over. I had my fling. Nobody will know any different. Except maybe he'll look just like me, but we'll figure that out later. (laughs) Right? But Uriah is an honorable man. And Uriah says, no, my fellow comrades are on the battlefield and they're fighting for their life. How can I go rest in my house while they're laying down their life? I won't do it. And he sleeps outside with the servants. And David's like, oh, why won't this guy do what I want him to do? Right? He gets Uriah to come back. Round two, the cover-up attempt. He said, okay, he didn't listen to me with his right mind. Now I'm going to get him drunk, and maybe he'll listen to me. Gets him all drunk, the text says, and sends him back. And even in a drunken state, Uriah says, no, will not do it. And so David's, in his mind, again, it's spiraling out of control. He's trying to manage it. You ever been there? You're trying to manage your sin and the consequences that, that are there. You're trying to manage it. You're moving stuff around, moving this piece, moving that piece. That's how I see David. He's frantic. He's not sleeping. He's up at night trying to manipulate and control the situation. He had, he had sinned. He knew he had sinned. He knew he had rebelled against God. And now he has this consequence, and he is scheming. He's a schemer of all schemers. And now in the, in the heart of rebellion against God, murder gets birthed. He hates Uriah enough and he loves himself and his sin enough that he's willing to kill Uriah. Man, what a plummet. Shepherd boy watching over dad's sheep. A man after God's own heart has fallen all the way down to an adulterer who is willing to commit murder to cover up his sin. And I'll say, we see it all over, don't we? what people are willing to do to cover up their sin. And maybe you and I, maybe we have not gone as far as desiring to kill somebody. But we are just like David. We are manipulators. We'll move this piece and that piece, delete this file, go all these different things we try to do to cover up our sin. And maybe after he sent Joab back and had Uriah brought to the front lines, to ensure his certain death and Uriah is killed and news comes back and maybe after that moment when he got the news that Uriah was dead, maybe he thought this, it's over now. Finally, I can take a deep breath. Problem solved. Here's what I'll do. I'll marry the widow of a war hero. 
And now nobody will know that I committed adultery and this child is born out of wedlock. No one will know that. They'll see me as an honorable king who's there to take care of a, a widow of a war hero. He's, he's, he's manipulated the circumstance to where it's, he, he comes out smelling like roses. He's like, I'm good. It's over. But the only problem is, is the problem of guilt. It's guilt. Anybody ever felt guilty over something? Can you imagine the guilt that would come with adultery and murder? Can you imagine that guilt? Some of us here today, we, 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 we've had guilt over things that we've done. I, I remember when I was a kid, I stole a pack of bubble gum from the store. I didn't have any guilt until my mom caught me. I don't know if I felt guilty after. I just was sad I missed the, the gum. I'm talking about real, like, big deal sin, right? You ever felt guilt? So here's what's going on in David's life. There's two realities that were growing at the same time in David's life. Do you know what the two realities were? The baby in Bathsheba's womb, his new wife, is growing. And as the belly expands, his guilt expands. Because every day, he's looking at the fruit of his sin. He's looking at the result of his, he's looking at the consequences of his sin. And he's seeing, he's remembering. He's remembering back to that moment in time on the rooftop. And no doubt he's thinking, if I just wouldn't have done that, if I could have said no, if I could have resisted, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? And not only did I commit adultery with a woman that's not my wife, but, but, but I was willing to kill her husband. And, and as the baby is growing in his wife's womb, the guilt is growing. And, and he had at least several months, not a full nine months, but probably close to seven or eight months of this happening. How do I know he was dealing with guilt? Because he wrote about it. There's another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 32. Listen, listen to his wrestling with the guilt of unconfessed sin. Psalm 32, the prophet David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You hear that? What language to be used for when I kept silent? What, what he's saying there is I wasn't confessing my sin. I was keeping silent. I was living with the regret and the shame of my sin, and I was keeping silent. And as I kept silent, it felt like my life was wasting away under the weight of my sin. And through my groaning all day long, he, grew, he had a deep groaning in the core of who he was all day long because of his sin. All day long he groaned, and night after night he had no sleep. Night after night, all day long he's groaning, and night after night his hand, God's hand was heavy upon him, lost to sleep, no rest. All day long his guilty conscience is weighing him down, and he lives with a daily reminder of his rebellion against God. So the question I, I ask is this, is, is, is what do we do with guilt? How do people handle guilt? Sometimes people think they can think their way out of a guilty conscience. I've committed the sin, so I'm just going to think my way out of it. I'll change the category for sin. It's no longer sin. I'll, I'll, I'll convince myself of that. I'll convince myself it's not a big deal. We'll think our way out of a guilty conscience. Well, here's the truth. You can't work your way out of a guilty conscience. Psychotherapy cannot deal with your guilt. Drugs and alcohol won't numb your guilt away. Why? Because the Bible tells us why we can't, we can't manage guilt. We can't do away with it. Why can't we do away with it? Nobody can. Sinners or Christians. Because the Bible says in Romans 2, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts thoughts accuse or even excuse them so here's what i'll say the common experience of a guilty conscience is yet another evidence of the existence of god because written on the heart of every man woman boy and girl whether they're a believer or they're not is the law of god written on the heart of man to remind them that there is a god who is a creator and who is a lawgiver and whom we are all accountable to and we can try to stuff our guilt we can try to erase our guilt we can try to change the categories for sin but at the core of who we are whether we're a believer or a non-believer we cannot scrub out guilt 
we don't have the right amount of detergent. Dawn gets out a lot of grease, but dawn cannot get out guilt. We don't have the detergent. Good works won't scrub it out for us. Atoning for our actions privately without confession won't do away with the guilt. So what's David going to do? How will he be rid of his guilt? His bones are wasting away. He has a deep inward groaning all day long. He can't sleep night after night. What's he going to do? Look at the last sentence of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's where David's left right there. The thing that David had done had displeased who? God. Now, let's pivot. Look at the first sentence of the next chapter, chapter 12, 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 1. What's David going to do? I love this. Listen. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Oh, my brothers and sisters. This is so powerful. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the Lord said, this is my son. And I love him enough, I'm going to send a prophet to him. That is such good news for us. That the one that the Lord loves, he reproves. If you are being reproved by God, it's because you're a son and a daughter and you're not out of the family, you're in the family. The Lord loves us enough to send us a one who will confront us in our sin, who will remind us of who God is. That's the one. And Nathan was the one that God sent. And in the sending of Nathan, in the confrontation against sin, whenever people are like Nathan in our life, sometimes we see them as our enemy. But Nathan was the gift from God to David. The Lord sent Nathan to Jonathan. Look at what it says next. It says, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. So Nathan comes to confront David sent from God to confront David in his sin. He tells him this parable-like story. He said, there's two men in the city, one a rich man, one a poor man. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. The, the rich man had lots of cattle, lots of lambs. The poor man had one. And, and this poor man loved that lamb so much that that lamb would eat from the master's table, would sleep with the master in his bed. The text even says that the, the poor man treated her like his daughter. And it says the rich man, when he had guests that were traveling into town, though he had lots of other lambs, he came and stole the lamb that belonged to the poor man so he could kill it and serve it to his guest. And Dathan is telling this story to David, and David's getting enraged. He said, this is not right. This is not fair. That man is taking something that doesn't belong to him. Right? What's going to be done about this man? This man, and David, he doesn't know this is a fake story. He didn't know it's a setup. David said, something has to be done to that man. And Nathan looks at him. I don't know if he had a bony finger, but I picture a bony little finger and an old prophet. He pointed in David's face and he said, David, you're the man. It's you. It's you, David. You're the one who took something that didn't belong to you. Not only did you take a woman that didn't belong to you, but you took a life that you didn't create. Right? You're the man. And what does Nathan begin to do? He lays out the consequences of David's sin. He confronts him and says, you're the man. It's you. And Nathan tells him, hey, you're going to suffer because of this, buddy. All of your, the rest of your life will be marked by death. It will never leave your family. You're going to run for your life. And the child that was born to you through Bathsheba is going to die. And those are the consequences. So, he hears the consequences of his choices. What's David going to say? This is kind of the pinnacle of the story right here. This is, this is where we're going to pivot here in just a moment. But this is kind of the pinnacle. What's David going to say? Is he going to be like Saul? When Samuel confronted Saul, what did Saul say? Hey, it's, it's the people. They wanted to make a sacrifice to your God. It's because they love you. It's because they love God so much. That's why I didn't obey. That's why I sinned. Prophet Samuel, is he going to be like that? Is he going to blame Bathsheba? Is he going to blame God because of his sexual desires? Is, what's he going to do? David says one thing, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. 
I've sinned against the Lord. No excuses. Doesn't sound like Saul. Doesn't sound like anyone else in the Bible that we see that justifies their sins. Not like Adam in Genesis. I've sinned. It's me. I did it. I have sinned against the Lord. And now, that my introduction is done. You feel it? Have you felt the weight, shepherd boy? Shepherd boy, faithful, loves the Lord, man after God's own heart. Anointed king would, had such integrity that his heart was smitten that he cut a corner of the robe of Saul and mocked him with it. Some of us would have cut a bigger piece and would have posted it on Facebook. <laughs> ha, 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 look what I did. David had such a sensitive conscience from that sensitive conscience to a man on the rooftop desiring a woman that wasn't his and willing to murder her husband to have her. You feel, do you feel the weight of the mighty fall? And you see in the confrontation, David gives for us what true repentance of sin looks like. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he wrote his confession in great detail in Psalm 51. And in it, we have three elements of genuine repentance. We're going to go through it quickly. Three elements of genuine repentance. First, we must see our sin correctly. We must see our sin correctly. Look at the text, Psalm 51, the second half of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We must see our sin correctly. David shows us a man who saw his sin correctly. Whose sin was it? My. My. My iniquity. My sin. My transgressions. My sin, he says it again. I have sinned. It's my sin. My, my, my sin. My transgressions. My evil. No passing the buck. No passing the blame. It was me. Genuine repentance starts with the willingness to acknowledge that it's nobody else's fault but yours. It's no one else's fault but mine. I did it. I own up. It's my fault. I'll name the sin. I'll call it out. It is mine, and it is evil. I'm not going to try to change the definitions. Genuine repentance begins with the ownership of sin. And when we own sin, you know what we're doing when we're owning our sin? We are saying the same thing about sin that God says. God says in his word, things are sinful, right? We could go through a list of things that are sinful. And whenever we acknowledge our sin, we're saying the same thing that God says. When we don't, we're saying the same thing that the devil says. Sometimes, sometimes we don't like to think that we think like the devil, but sometimes we do when we justify our sins. We try to change them, erase them. David doesn't do that. Now, here's another thing that David saw. Notice what it says here. He owns it. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's I. I, I did it. It was evil. Notice what he says. Against you and you only have I sinned. Is, that, that's, doesn't that shock you a little bit like it shocks me when you first read it? I've heard it over the years. I, he sinned against Bathsheba, didn't he? Sinned against Uriah, certainly. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against all the people that were loyal to him, to follow him, to lead him. But he says, against you and you only have I sinned. What, what else did David see about his sin? Well, he saw his sin correctly because he saw God correctly, right? He saw who God was. Genuine repentance begins with seeing your, your, taking ownership of your sin, but, but ultimately understanding that that sin that I see correctly is ultimately against a holy God. My sin is against a holy God. It reminds me of prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw the Lord, and what did he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So two, two, two things are happening right here in David's life. He's communicating that he understands the weight of his sin. It's his sin. And the weight of David's sin against the holy God was pressing down upon him. No excuses, no justification. David acknowledged it was his, and that sin was against a holy God. So firstly, what do we learn from David? We must see our sin correctly. Secondly, we must see ourselves correctly. 
must see genuine repentance calls out the sin. And then we see ourselves growing here. Look, look back to Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David understood that his greatest sin problem was actually not his sin. He says it here in verse 5. He, he actually understood that the greater reality was that, was that he was sinful to the core of his being. In sin did my mother conceive me. I don't think he's, he's saying that just like Bathsheba conceived a baby because of sin, that that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he was born in sin, sinful by nature. David understood that it wasn't sin that made him a sinner, sinful acts that made him a sinner, but that he sinned because he was a sinner. And in saying that, what was David saying? He was recognizing he didn't just need external transformation of his actions, but he needed something to happen at the heart level, in the inward being. That's what he said there. In iniquity was I born, and you desire truth in the inner being. At my core, I'm guilty. At my core, I'm sinful. I recognize it, and I know that at my core, I must be changed and made clean. You desire truth in the inward being. Paul the Apostle said what David said. David said what Paul said. And you were dead in your trespasses, Ephesians 2, and the sins in which, uh, uh, and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. So, so genuine repentance recognizes that the problem is not simply external. Behavior modification will never fix it. This is what David is saying. He recognizes, I'll never fix this. And don't you think he thought about that over and over again? Those months where he's wrestling with the guilt. I'm sure he thought of all kind of ways. I can fix this on my own. And atone for this sin. But he recognizes in this genuine repentance. I know I sinned. I sinned against the holy God. And, and, and I can't change it. I can't fix it. I need something to happen at the core of who I am. David understood his sin correctly. He understood himself correctly. That his biggest problem was not that he sinned. But that he was a sinner. And lastly, hear me. He understood that his only hope was to fall on the only one who could do anything about it. So what's the third thing genuine repentance looks like? Thirdly, we must see God correctly. Look back to the text, Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, listen, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Deliver me. From blood guiltiness, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation. How did David see God correctly? He saw his sin correctly. He did. Have you seen your sin correctly today? Are you done justifying your actions? Have you seen your sin correctly? Do you realize that you need a deep work on the inside of your heart that behavior modification won't change your guilt, won't erase it away? You don't have the right amount of detergent to get that done. Have you seen that? And have you come to know, like David, that the only one who can do anything about your sin is God? Did you hear that in the text? How many times did David say it? David knew that God was the only one who could do anything. What did he say? He said, he said God, could you, would you have mercy on me? Forgive me. Wash me. Blot out. Create in me a clean heart. Renew me. Restore. Deliver and save. The beginning of his psalm, he he cries out to a God that he knows will have mercy. David knew that God was the only one, and that is the heart of the gospel today. The heart of the gospel is that God has done and can do something about our sin and guilt. And we must see this correctly. Every other false religion except Christianity leaves sinners with themselves as the only solution to their problem of sin and guilt. And that's us too as Christians we're not exempt from this, my brothers and sisters. David was an Old Testament saint. We will see David in heaven. The proof of his, of his belief in God and his righteousness is, is his confession. Brothers and sisters, don't ever say we don't sin. The one who says they don't sin is a liar, First John says, and the truth does not dwell in them. 
This is for us today. It's not for the world out there. It's for them. Not only for them, it's for us today. We must understand that when we sin and and we have the guilt that we are carrying because of our sin, do we see God correctly? Do we fall on his grace? Do we acknowledge our sin? We call it for what it is. Do Do we cry out to a God who can forgive? We can't handle it on our own. The only solution, the only detergent is the detergent that was made at Calvary. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Listen to this. So powerful. Men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins. But here, in this account, this is his words about David. Men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here is a comfort. Our God has multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. Amen. That's so good. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, I know all you bald people, you think, I don't have any. Well, there's some roots down there somewhere. Kind of like being born in sin. you still got some roots. God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. So what was David's response to all of this? How does he end his psalm? And what should our response be if we find ourselves trapped in this cycle of sin and guilt? Look at the last two verses of Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. What is he saying there? It's so good. It's what I've been saying this whole time. He's saying, if, it, if I could sacrifice my way out of it, I'd do it. If I could, if, if I could sacrifice the bulls and the goats and the pigeons, if I, if I could sacrifice my way out of it, I would do it. But, 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 but that's not what you delight in. For, for you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And that's where David landed. And that's why David gives for us the greatest example in the Bible of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance sees sin correctly, sees himself correctly, and sees a God who will have mercy and who will abundantly pardon. The God of the Bible is not the God of Islam. The God of Islam is a tyrant. Well, you never know. There's no grace. You never know if you're right with with the God of Islam and his prophet Allah, the Bible, the Christian God, the true God, the only God, is the only one that offers grace today. The only one. So here's what I'll end with. Brokenness and humility, God will not despise. Brokenness and humility, God will not despise. So I want to end like this. There's many different people here in different situations. There's many different unconfessed sins right here, right now unconfessed sins maybe there's adultery unconfessed here in this room right now maybe there's some other form of sexual sin that's unconfessed here right now there's there's anger unconfessed there's bitterness unconfessed there's gossip unconfessed there's many sins in this room right now amongst God's people right now in my heart and in your heart so the question is is how will we deal with our sin The truth is is that all of that sin was paid for, past, present, and future, and our salvation is connected to our faith in what Christ has done for us, and his provision for us on the cross. But here's what happens in the life of of a believer when we do not confess our sin and we do not come clean. We lose that freshness and that closeness in our relationship with God. We are living with a guilty conscience. And the truth is, if you are genuinely a believer here today, you will not live in unrepentant sin. You will go to God. And you will say, God, I'm tired of running. And now look, there may be some consequences you're going to have to deal with because of your sin. But the answer is just to respond like David. Brokenness and humility, God will not despise. So genuine repentance today ends, or excuse me, begins with humility. It begins and ends with humility. Genuine repentance begins with humility. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'm going to close in prayer. We've seen we've seen a story, haven't we today?
My prayer is, is that all of us would not just see a story that was off in the distant past, but that we would see ourselves reflected in that story in different ways. So, Father, I pray for myself and all that are here with me this morning. God, I pray that we would not be justifiers of our sins. God, you see it all. You're a God who knows and sees. I can't hide anything from you. I pray that we would not justify our sin, we would not make excuses for our sin, but that we would own it, we would repent, and we would humbly surrender to you today. Even as believers, Lord, may we repent. Or may we never stop being repenters of sin as believers. May we live a life acknowledging sin and repenting of sin and turning towards you. And maybe there's some here today that you haven't repented of of the sin of disobedience, the sin of unbelief, of ultimate unbelief in God. You haven't repented of the sin of rejection of Christ. You've not come to faith in Christ here today. And if that's you, I pray that you would surrender. I pray that you would repent and turn to Christ. So Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that they would do that. The believer and the non-believer alike, no reason for shame, God, no reason for embarrassment, God, but may we humbly come and repent before you. Give us a clean heart. Help us to be humble, Lord.